everybody, and uh, thanks so much for joining us for another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And for those of you who are new to this, uh, here at Motorsport Magazine, we do a podcast once a month with a legend from our sport, and today we most certainly have one. We have travelled today. We have left our headquarters in London and come up to Northampton, which is, as you know, is near Silverstone. Although I think all of us are agreed we've been going to Silverstone for about 50 years, but we've never really come into Northampton. So last night, Nigel Roebuck and I had a little look around. And uh, anyway, here we are. And we're at the home of Tony Southgate. Now, many of you have uh, written into us with your questions, and we will be getting round to those um, during this programme. And I have with me, of course, Tony Southgate's book, From Drawing Board to Checkered Flag. And I notice from your questions that many of you have read this book, which I have resting on my lap right now. And uh, with us today are Nigel Roback, uh, Simon Aaron, and of course our website editor Ed Foster, who has transported all the recording equipment up to Northampton from London, and he's sitting in a corner making sure you can hear us. So Tony, uh, thank you very much for having us, and welcome to our podcast. Well, I was very pleased, I'm very pleased to have you here, it's great. Good. Um, let's start with, um, we've just uh, come out of the Hungarian Grand Prix, which was thrilling, it was a fabulous race, and had everything you could ever ask for, but... It doesn't really hide the fact that Formula One has, has its problems. I mean, were you back there today, what, what would you be doing to it to, to make it a bit more exciting? Uh, I must admit I'm not a fan of modern Formula One, or Le Mans for that matter. I don't like all these uh, gizmos. There's too many. I mean, you've got to be, the driver should drive the car rather than it basically be, he's almost told what to do. And I don't like that at all. And I mean, desperation gadgets, you know, like... Uh, that will drop in the wing so you can overtake somebody. I mean, that is crap. Uh, okay, if, if it enables people to overtake, well, it adds a bit of variety. Uh, however, uh, yeah, I say I'm not uh, a fan of those, uh, the, the modern cars, although I do watch the Grand Prix because the racing is still racing. And the weekend, of course, uh, Hungarian was, uh, it was a great race because there was lots of incidents. Absolutely. And uh, if that, on a track like uh, Hungarian Ring where you can't overtake, you need incidents, don't you? Otherwise, uh, it's sure. pretty grim. Sure. Uh, no, uh, I, uh, although I'm a, I've been a great follower, pioneer, whatever you might call it, of aerodynamics, because back in my day, you didn't go in for aerodynamics, but they didn't yeah. exist, sort yeah. of, well, vaguely. Yeah. Uh, but I started in the 60s uh, getting into it and wings and all that sort of business. Uh, now, of course, it's totally out of control. I know they try to restrict it, but how can you restrict it? Uh, I, I went round, took a group of some 50 medical around the, the Mercedes uh, uh, factory recently, and uh, uh, they told me they got two wind tunnels, and they go, one of them is running all the time. So 24 hours every day. Yeah. And they've got crews, they've got more aerodynamics you can shake a stick at type of thing. And they're all, uh, uh, so they're running stuff all the time all the way through the races they're making adjustments to the car mm. and it goes straight i mean they don't have to talk to the people back at base they know what's happening so they can make a little adjustment say oh yeah. you will need to go up or down a bit and that to me is crap because that's not racing that's just big business yeah. and no i know it is big business but i don't think it necessarily makes it any better 
and I think a dramatic reduction in the aero would would be the first thing to do. No, I think we're all I think we're all agreed with you actually, particularly when it comes to DRS. But we mustn't get Mr. Well, Robot no, on just DRS. Well, I just wanted to mention at this point because because this is a man that Tony worked for. I was talking to Dan Gurney recently. He said, "When I look back, the mistake we all made was wings. That was the beginning. That was the beginning of the rod." And, it's and, he, and he just <clears> said, "Because I'm afraid, if you want to be completely on it, it is aero that has ruined motor racing." It's it's quite interesting. It's only a few years ago, I was chatting to a team principal in the F1 paddock, um, probably about 2006, 2007, and he was saying one of the things that frustrated him massively was the amount of money that got spent on what he considered to be completely pointless little tiny little sculptures and you know, a new front wing end plate which was going to cost 30 or 40 thousand pounds a time and if you've got pastor maldonado in the car i guess you get through 10 a weekend but he said it was just endless expense on something that was completely pointless to the overall show it made no difference to the spectators whether you got that and he said it was but he felt powerless because there was nothing because of the way the sport was structured, there was nothing he individually was able to do about it. And he said it was just this money going out of the door yeah. every day. The first thing you do is just take the front wings off. None. Zero <laughs> yeah. front wing. I, I, it's I, dead simple. You just yeah. take the bloody thing off. Yeah. Uh, and then they'd have, the car would then have to be made to balance. With the rear wing would be negligible. Okay, you're allowed to tolerate some sort of ground effect because uh, you can't uninvent it. Uh, but uh, business where the, the car literally rubbed the ground, uh, that's a bit sort of uh, marginal. Not many road cars do that. No. Uh, so uh, uh, I think, uh, uh, you know, just take the front wing off. Boy, that sort of man. Let's, can we just, um, just, so we put all this into context, Tony. Um, can you just give us a, a, a resume of how you got into designing racing cars? Because I think you wanted to work for Jaguar, but the, they, they didn't let you in the door or something. T t just put uh, I, uh, this is going back to school days, of course. Uh, I went along, uh, I was about to be about 16, I suppose, just then, which was the end of school for me. Uh, I went along to Jaguars for uh, an interview um, and, uh, and, and a test. They were taking on, eight, I can't remember, not many, about 10 or 15 apprentices. And uh, when uh, the interview was reasonable enough, I suppose, but when it got to the exam, written exam, it was just maths. I thought, oh, bloody hell. <laughs> it wasn't my best subject. Uh, I was better on lots of other uh, s uh, science and engineering. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, that didn't come into it. So I didn't get uh, an apprenticeship there. I look back. I remember telling Egan that. We're leaning on the wing at one race meeting on the... Uh, uh, you know, before the race, and by then we were dominating or expected to win. And I, I said that. I said, I often chuckle. I said, I ended up with the, because racing cars is like the cream on the cake. And I ended up doing the, the Jaguar, which would be the cream on the cake. Uh, and I couldn't even get a bloody apprenticeship there. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> no, that's, that's John Egan, of course, who ran that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, but you, you did go to Lola. And a lot of people um, of your generation in motor racing went to Lola, didn't they? It was a real sort of ground school, wasn't it? Uh, well, I was the first drawing type. Uh, in my day, it was in Bromley, Kent. And it was behind Rob Brushbrook's garage. His garage wasn't a service station, not a petrol station. It was like just for servicing cars. It was just a small building where you went in and had a new clutch fitted or something. And behind it was a... a, a fairly basic 
little building, most only about 2,000 feet at most, and that was Lola's. And uh, in my book, there's a super photograph of the entrance to Lola's. The, from the side street, the, the main entrance went through a literally a terraced row of houses, just a hall, and above it was this board saying Lola Cars. I took a picture of that. Great. And the amazing thing was, if you went down that little alleyway to this little building, inside was a Formula One car, brand new Formula One car. Fantastic. Brand new, never turned a wheel. And I used to chuckle. I thought, well, nowadays... Uh, uh, <laughs> you can't I was say, it, it. it wasn't quite like that when you took the 750 Motor Club to Mercedes the other week, was it? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> oh, no, that was, uh, that was good. Well, fortunately, Ross was there then. This was about two years yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Ross was there, and of course, he used to be in the 750 Club uh, years and years ago. So he's quite enthusiastic, and uh, uh, so we had a, arranged a good tour and what have you. And a few, I did know a few of the faces there, XTWR people and that. But, I mean, the, the, the difference now is night and day. You, know, you can't. Like going around an aircraft factory. How did how did your first Le Mans Challenger come about? Because you you were in at the birth of the Ford GT40. Uh, at Lola's uh, in sixty started as the Lola GT didn't it? in sixty two, yeah. beginning of sixty two, uh, and we were doing Formula Junior, and, and this Formula One car came out there. Well, that existed when I got there. It was just I didn't run. It was got a four cylinder engine. It was just about ready, because Eric said, look at this, and he was like in a corner in, behind a, a partition. And I thought, bloody hell, I've landed in heaven. And uh, he, uh, uh, and so my first job was to put the V8 engine into that car, you know, do the man engine mounted thing, which was quite exciting. Um, uh, Lola's was a great place, because you know, there was only a handful of people. Uh, there was only about eight or nine full-time people. And then they had temporaries. People come in and just help them build cars or weld them or something. But that GT40 came out of the little Lola GT car, didn't it? Yeah, that was uh, that was Stein's uh, 63. Right. Uh, I spent six months on that, which you know, in those days was a phenomenal amount of time because you would uh, you'd do about three projects a year. And don't forget, the projects paid for everything, so you had to make money. So the drawing, you'd only perhaps draw 70% of the car. A lot of the stuff, like oil tanks, I'd be made uh, on the job in situ. And bits like that, fuel tanks are always a bit like that. So that uh, uh, the, the drawing time was dramatically uh, reduced compared to today. Uh, but the, the GT car, I don't know where the idea came from. Derek just said to me, when I want to do this GT car, with a big American engine. Oh, blimey, I didn't know anything about that. So <coughs> I've never even seen an American engine. And, and it, it turns out it was what we called the Mark VI, because the Bromley cars are all Marks, yeah. and then the Slough cars are then types, right. so you can tell which was made at Slough or, or Bromley. Right. And um, and it was uh, uh, the bodywork was uh, done by John Frayling, a stylist, and he used to do like clay modelling and plonk it on the table and we'd look at it and say, come on, that looks good. He did quite a few shapes before we arrived at that one. We never went near a wind tunnel because uh, we didn't know they existed, I don't suppose, to be honest. Uh, and it was a powerful car, but it was very small and s clean shaped, so uh, it didn't present an aero problem from what I can remember. We had, we had a Calotti gearbox, which gave a bit of trouble, but that Calotti was really the forerunner of Hewland. I mean, Hewlands are just copies of... <coughs> 
of, uh, of Calotti's. <laughs> Who said well, that? <laughs> well, well, we'll probably come to copying a little later in the in the show. <laughs> anyway, not not not. <laughs> um, uh, you went to Brabham, Ron Toronac. What was he like? What was he like to work? Well, we're uh, jumping about here because yeah. because we could be this could be a five-hour show, but it, it isn't. Yeah. Um, well, the, the reason I went to Bram was the, the, the Ford project took off. Uh, and Erica got this contract for two years for the uh, GT40. Well, it was just a car then. And based on the Lola uh, Mark VI. Because they had the same engines. Because it was God sent for Ford. They said, blimey, it's already ex in existence. Mm. Uh, and it's actually run. We ran it. But it was all done on a shoestring. Incredibly uh, low budget, as you can imagine. And um, when Ford came in, they sent over about three or four of their ace engineers, and all in shiny suits and ties. And uh, of course, when they got to Bromley, I mean, they almost vomit <laughs> vomited, because uh, the drawing office was a, a hard board, well, no, a chipboard sort of building above the lathe, and uh, about that big. So uh, uh, they moved the slough uh, to keep more happy and I thought well this is no good I was 22 then 23 looked about 18 and I'm, like, well, I'm not gonna get a look in with this crowd because they're all be the only thing is they didn't know anything about racing really they uh, they've been racing saloons and all they did was basically put big wheels on them and stiffen the springs up mm. yeah great those big American wallowy saloons uh, so they didn't really they thought the drawings are all weird because the well, you remember Lola's was quite progressive in those days, yeah, the yeah. designs and stuff. And so uh, I thought, well, bugger this. So I'll, I'll go down the road and see if there's anything going. In those days, you didn't know whether I didn't know whether I was going to be in racing for long. It wasn't a profession that uh, you could yeah. guarantee a job. No. Yeah, and uh, so I, uh, yeah, I went to Brabham's, and the Ron jumped at it because. Uh, there were no people in those days that, uh, with any sort of drawing experience, or certainly race car experience. But he's uh, too difficult to work for. Was he's he? okay. He's a good, good engineer, but boy, is he difficult. Yeah. How? How? Because, I mean, so, uh, you're not the first person mm. to say that, <clears throat> but it just in what way was he, was he awkward or, or, no, uh, or basically he didn't too demanding? Draw. Or? He would get the, the, the draftsman to draw. There were two of us, Mike Hillman and myself, in the office. Uh, because I'd come from Lola's, I'd got experience, and, and that was, it meant a, a hell of a lot in those days, because you knew what, what it was all about and so on. And I used to draw the whole car. He didn't just draw a bit, he drew the whole bloody lot. <laughs> and uh, he uh, would say, oh, I want some adjustable pedals, for example, or something like that. And you'd draw them up, and he'd say, I don't like them. I'd say, well, okay, you know, what's that? <laughs> so change it, yeah, you'd change it. He'd say, no, I don't like that. He'd go, no, I don't like that, no, I don't like that. And I remember one time I said, well, why don't you draw the effing things then? <laughs> and he says, no, 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 you know I can't. I thought, that, well, <laughs> and it, it was, that, was, that was the sort of relationship you had. Right. However, as an engineer, he was ace. As, production, uh, as the production uh, engineer for making race cars, he was the top of the pile. The thing, um, the the move to America was a bit, a bit well, I'm guessing, was a big thing. I mean, moving to Gurney, Eagle, um, Winning the Indy 500. I mean, boy, the, I mean, this for, for a man of your age and, and at that time must have been an incredible experience. Right? Uh, well, don't forget, we'd, 
at Lola's had already won Indy the year before. Oh, right. In 66 we won it with Graham Hill. Oh, we had sorry, Graham Hill yeah. and Jackie Stewart driving the cars. Yeah. yeah. Hass entered them. Yeah. And, uh, well, I used to draw the cars because Eric didn't. Uh, he would do the ski. He would say, this is what it's going to be. And if there was anything odd in uh, layout or whatnot, he would scheme that out and then let me get on with it. And uh, it was a fairly sort of straightforward car. Uh, we did a couple of indie cars, uh, the 90 and the 92, I think it was called. And um, anyway, in 66, it won. That's the year that that great big crash. And yeah. all, I suppose, being experienced or more experienced, they, uh, the likes of uh, Graham and Stuart, they could just drive through the wreckage. Mm. Uh, and the other lads didn't. But anyway, we won that. So obviously, uh, this I went to Guinness in the 67, 68 time. And um, so I'd, that was fresh in my head. So an IndyCar was no problem. It wasn't as though I was drawing something new to me. Sure, sure. And so there was no problem. How did you get on with Dan? What would, was your relationship good with Dan? Oh, yeah, Dan was, was a lovely man. Uh, quite sort of shy. Uh, a shy man, quiet. Uh, no, no, no problem. And he was a, a fiddler. <laughs> He's renowned for fiddling, uh, and come across that before. Uh, we were we used to run all sorts of cars there. We had Can-Am cars as well. We had a, a Lola, and then he had a McLaren, and we used to modify them a bit, lighten them. Up to, he used to like playing around with them. <laughs> um, but uh, the once again the the Indy cars, and we made Formula Five Thousand as well, which is a similar car, only cheaper. Um, uh, they had to make money because that's what they yeah. lived off. So it's a bit like Lola's. So we'd make a ten of them or six of them or something like that and sell them so that when we got to Indy, the car that won Indy wasn't actually owned by AAR it was a customer car which is Anza's and the two uh, works ones one came second which is Dan and then the other one Danny Holm came uh, fourth yeah. did, did you have much direct contact with Bobby Anza and if so what was he like to work with uh, well, he's American, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he's he was the same thing. By for a, for a sort of a sort of a, a lowly Englishman, uh, he was in, came over as incredibly confident and arrogant. And uh, I remember after the race when he won it, we were having breakfast together in the motel, uh, and he was full, well. Fair enough, he's going to be full of himself because that was the race in those <laughs> days. Indy was very important. It was like a yeah, yeah. Monaco or something. Absolutely. I mean, if it, and I couldn't believe it when it went down the start line and stood there, and there's like four hundred thousand people there. Yeah. I've never seen so maybe a great bank of them, and the racing was actually pretty damn good. Although they only go round and round and round, it was still good because everything happened quick. I mean, it was so dramatic the the running of the race. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the yellows and bring him in and change. Oh, I couldn't keep up with it. But anyway, he, he was incredibly arrogant. But he was actually, uh, he's not a technical dry, driver, not from my point of view anyway. And he, uh, uh, but he's, like a lot of these Americans, they're very brave. Yeah. They're sort of brave drivers, like the Fulmers and that. They're all very yeah. brave, but not necessarily technical. Andretti was really like that. You'd need to be, though, brave, wouldn't you? I mean, In that medical racing, yes. <laughs> in those days, those dirt track things. And in fact, in the middle of all that, you were, you, were, you were somewhat involved in the making of winning, weren't you? 
Because I'm sure in your book, yeah. don't you talk about Newman drifting through the, the workshops? They did some workshop scenes in the, in the factory, and they actually drove the Indy car. He, went, he drove one of the Eagle Indy cars, which was... He, he, that's obviously what got him hooked on racing, I guess. Yeah. I mean, to actually, for a full star, just plunk in a, a current sort of Indy car and go around, okay, sedately, yeah. but it must have been a phenomenal thrill. And it, yeah, yeah, they used to, they did some scenes there, very basic sort of stuff. But he used to wander in to the drawing office in some scruffy overalls, trying to look like a mechanic, you know, yeah. dirt on his face and things like that. And he, uh, you know, look on the drawing board and say, you know, what you're doing type of thing. So, well, this is the car. And he'd say, that's the back <laughs> or the front or something. That's what it's going to look like. Yeah, and he was, he was genuinely interested, yeah. Fantastic life you've had, haven't you? It's amazing. Um, yeah, interesting, yeah. Um, we, 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 so we've got to keep moving and I, I, this is a bit I'd really like to know about and I'm sure Simon and Nigel will have things to ask you as well but I mean you went you went to BRM which featured Mr Louis Stanley uh, so we, uh, and Mr Raymond Mays <laughs> and Mr Raymond Mays absolutely um, tell us a bit about that because that was another big change wasn't it I mean well I, the attraction of uh, BRM was the getting back into Form 1 because going to America, we would, we had a Form 1 project but uh, they ran out of money so it was stopped. Uh, we actually made the chassis and had the engine ready and that sort of thing but um, it, it, it was stopped and uh, so I carried on just concentrating on indie cars and even that took a bit of a dump because you couldn't go in for curved panels. Fabricating in America in those days was quite difficult. And we used to have stuff made in the UK and shipped out. Really? It was, Back oh, then it was a bit silly like that, yeah. Whereas, uh, so uh, it was all getting a bit sort of tight. And at about that time, uh, 69, 30s was over there doing uh, the Can-Am yeah. uh, at Riverside, which was local. And uh, he, he sort of tracked me down and said, uh, he was driving a BRM. He said, well, it's a hell of a mess over there and all this sort of thing. Because they were chugging around near the back of the grid, even though they got the likes of Surtees and Oliver driving. And so uh, he said he was in a position to offer me a job to uh, design their new car, so, so I jumped at it. I bet you did. I didn't know anything about BRM, no, n nothing. So it was quite interesting, quite open. And the interesting thing was the fact they made the whole car, which was, yeah. other than Ferrari, that was it. Yeah. And that, that was quite attractive. Well, I actually enjoyed this stay at... Uh, uh, BRM, although it was a bit dramatic on occasion, there was a bit, but uh, <laughs> uh, the, it was very different, very different, old-fashioned. I think the, 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 a lot, a lot of British fans, including me. I mean, I was, I, I joined the BRM Supporters Club. Um, there was something about it, and as you say, I mean, they built the whole car. But Louis Stanley was. I mean, did you have much contact with him or not, or were you hidden away doing what you were doing? And oh no, he, he had his uh, office and. Uh, uh, he was there, well, not, I wouldn't say all the time, but a lot of the time he was, was he? there. And uh, they're always having meetings, and uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it's usually to do with the, the engine power, the favourite one, and it would go on and on and on. And uh, some of the, looking back, the meetings were quite funny. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but uh, 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 he, he liked to be the, the big boss. He wasn't technical at all, no. but he had the authority. Uh, through his wife to run the show because yes. she was the one who had the power really she was yeah. the uh, 
the sister, the chap who owned it. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, he, he lucked in, I suppose you could say. But um, it wasn't what you call an asset. He did have... He was useful because when it came to sponsors, I think they were sucked in by his pomp, uh, yes. and uh, they all thought every, they, they all thought he was a lord or something. I said, no, he's not. He's, he's yeah, a bullshitter. In the states, in the states yeah. they certainly did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he did, and he didn't sort yeah. of try and dissuade them either. No, no. But uh, I've since read his stepdaughter's book, which is a bit of an eye opener. Mm. Have you read that? Yeah. Cool, blimey. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it is. It is. Um, he did have the knack of chatting these, keeping these sponsors, getting these sponsors. So, because we got, we went to Yardley, went commercial straight away in 1970, and then two years later, when the contract finished, he went to Marlborough. But once he got the sponsor, he wasn't interested in them, so he wouldn't butter them up and look after them very much, like nowadays. And the result is they they moved on, and interesting, both both times they went to McLaren. So uh, I reckon BRM should have got a cut on that on the uh, sponsorship deals because we were providing them for McLaren. Yeah, obviously, at the BRM time uh, of interest, to, I'm sure to most of us, Messrs. Sifford and Rodriguez. I mean, they, you know, both got fantastic sports car pedigrees, but they both won Formula One races as well. What you know, what were they both like to deal with? Uh, well, you're going back to a different sort of era now. The, the drivers uh, nowadays, uh, um, basically, they only do, generally do, just do Formula One. They concentrate. Mm. But uh, um, in those days, they did any sort of driving, anything that earned a, a few bob. <laughs> uh, and uh, so, and the drivers were more characters. Like uh, uh, Pedro had a. Charisma. He was. He got uh, something about him. He was m like mystical. <laughs> uh, he didn't say very much. He just stood there and walked in and moved. Uh, <laughs> it was quite fascinating. That's how I saw him. I don't know what he was out and about. He might be quite different. But and his, uh, deer, and his deer stalker. Yes. Oh, he loved to have a deer stalker and a, and a, and a country jacket and yeah. things. And he had this Rolls Royce, which I didn't know he had a Rolls Royce. Right. Suddenly. His girlfriend was showing some photographs at some dinner, and he was posing next to his Rolls Royce. He was obviously very proud of it, and I and he was sitting next to me. And I looked at this and I said, "You didn't tell me you got a Rolls Royce." Cause, I mean, BRM, you didn't earn anything. You, you didn't work there for the money. I mean, you, you couldn't afford a bike, let alone a bloody Rolls Royce. <laughs> uh, and I was the highest paid person at uh, BRM, and I got two thousand three hundred pound a year. And he was incredibly embarrassed when I showed him this photograph. He's almost trying to make excuses for owning it because he knew that to us it was like uh, unbelievable. He, he could have a what, Rolls Royce and all that yeah, sort of thing. Really, yeah. And uh, yeah, he's quite embarrassed about it. But actually, he's a super bloke. Uh, he was incredibly popular with the mechanics. Everyone. He didn't. He wasn't demanding to just get in car and drive it. Come in. You make a couple of adjustments. Say great. He said fast, fantastic. Say okay. <laughs> or he'd come in and sometimes and say. The car's not so good, and he'd have a fiddle, and he'd come out and say, it's okay now. And that's it. And, and, and qualifying, he'd never get all screwed up at qualifying. And I remember him saying to me, I said, well, you know, you're fifth on the grid. I thought we might be able to do better. And he said, don't matter. He said, I'll overtake them all on the first lap. <laughs> <laughs> and often he did. 
He was just breathtaking to watch though, wasn't he? Nigel and I were talking last night about the BOAC 500 in the rain in the Porsche. I mean, oh, yes. Guys just, five, it's just spellbinding to yeah. watch, wasn't oh, it? Oh, yes. Yeah. It, it always amazed me though, that somebody brought up in Mexico should have had this extraordinary gift for, for driving in yeah. the wet. Yes. I mean, he was, yeah. he was amazing in the wet, wasn't he? Uh, well, uh, I don't know how they do it. I had no idea how they did it. That drive like that. He was, uh, to me, it's terrifying driving in the wet. Because <laughs> as soon as the car starts sliding around, I chicken out and sort of lift off. <laughs> so, but didn't bowl them straight in. Yeah. yeah. Amazing, yeah. And what, and what about Sifford? Joe, Joe, he was, uh, unfortunately, he was a bit overshadowed by Pedro because Pedro was the number one. Yeah. And Joe was number two. Uh, Talent-wise, well, I don't think there's any much in it, uh, to be honest. Uh, he was not what I call a non-technical driver as well. Uh, and uh, but yeah, he knew what he wanted. He'd say you know if it, the car's bouncing around or something like. That. I mean, the first time he said that was very funny. We we're at Alton Park because we used to do non-championship races. Remember in those days, mm. in the P160, and he came and he said, uh, and I'm like, "This is one of the first conversations I think I'd ever had with him." He said, "The car's jumping all over the place." I said, "What?" He says, "It's jumping." Because <laughs> he mentioned, and, and I thought that was very, very, very amusing. But it basically it was just uh, shock settings and things. Uh, but um, uh, it, it, he fit into no problem. But I see he was a bit overshadowed. However, when Pedro got killed in that sports car accident, and and Joe took over immediately, he leapt to the the front. I think he was like second on the grid for the next time out. And what's that? Immediately he went up a rung on the ladder. It's interesting. Um, well, and that he won uh, in yeah. Austria, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Right afterwards. Oh yeah, he uh, he was he was a front runner then. You knew he was going to be a front runner. And uh, even at the, the Monza race where we, you know, where there was the big snake, he was li right at the front in that until he had some gear selection trouble. Uh, but uh, uh, I don't know why it. You do get that with drivers. They suddenly they put in the the hot seat and they respond. Well, confidence is a huge thing, isn't it? I think. Yeah, but he didn't exactly lack confidence. Yeah. But uh, perhaps deep down he thought Pedro could always just beat uh, him. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, we never talked about things like that. But, uh, um, as a as a as a um, an engineer, what sort of driver did you want to have? Did you want to have a driver who was very, very, got very deeply involved in improving the car, in working on the car, or, or for you, was it better if they just left that to you and they drove it as fast as it would go? That's difficult because I can think of uh, a load of drivers would slot into the natural talent variety like uh, Jarier. He'd get in a car and drive it flat out in about three laps and then never go any quicker. It doesn't matter what you did to the car, he just had it oozed natural talent and he would drive around any balance problem and uh, that that is I think that's fine if you're like a little private team but if you're like a works team trying to really make inroads and championships or something uh, you need a bit of a technical type driver you can have the overboard which is like John Surtees although I have great admiration with John he was a bit overboard because he was a frustrated engineer a designer he, he's better design and engineer than anybody. And he'd say that. No, no. He, he, was, <laughs> he, he, he's, he, he was very good. He's very, very good. There, you could perhaps, that might be a little too far. So whether you can get, I've never had a driver that's been what you might call spot on. Either, they tend to be one or the other. 
Actually, Simon did a great interview with Jerrier at the Goodwood members meeting where Jerrier hmm. drove the shadow again on uh, in the, that high air box. Uh, and drove the wheels off it. And drove yeah. the wheels yeah. off yeah. it. Yeah. 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 Yeah, so they, yeah, they asked me to go down there. But I said, well, I fancy, but it's a hell of a long way from Northampton. And I said, oh, sod it. <laughs> It's, uh, it's just very disappointing. I was really yeah. hoping you yeah, would come. Yeah, I cause... had several people chasing me to go down. Uh, well, it is a long way. I mean, you've got to stay overnight to start yeah. with. Yeah. You go down there and back in the days too yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. And, and Jerry overcomplicated things by rather than flying directly from Nice to London, which he could very easily have done, he opted to go via Paris for some reason, which then caused him to miss his connection. And he yeah. turned up about three, which, is, which I think is very... Very Jerry. Yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. yeah, he is a... Um, he never had the dedication of the other drivers. He had the talent, mm. oozed talent, but uh, he could only concentrate for a while and then it became a bit boring. You know, going to a test session with him was bad news. He didn't really like it. <laughs> you, know, you know what was going to happen. If you did any change on the car, you've got to you've got to do a run and come in and you need to note exactly what he says as soon as he stops. Uh, if you don't do any changes and he goes out, he'll come in and he'll just say the same thing forever. Yeah. So the car's okay, the car's okay. And I said, you just tell him it was understeering. Oh, it's okay now. <laughs> <laughs> he said that to me, uh, I think I mentioned in the book, and it was something I'd never come across before. And that's exactly a Dijon. He'd been understeering initially, and we were going quite quick there. That was the DN3, and uh, going pretty quick. And I... I said, well, what's happened to the... We're at the debrief at the end of the practice. I said, what happened to that understeer you said? I said, oh, uh, it's no problem. I drove round it. I said, how the hell would you drive round it? He said, well, I just gave one to half a turn to the rear brakes. So as I went in the corner, it started to lock up the rear wheels, which cancelled out the understeer, and he just sat in a neutral. <laughs> and I thought, I said, you're not supposed to do that. <laughs> but that's, what, that's the sort of thing he used to do. Yeah. Which, yeah. Is, which is actually quite good logic, really, isn't it? Okay, so, if it, Tony, if can I just say well, at one point, you're saying you never about technical drivers. Was when you were at Lotus, was 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 Mario not a technical driver? I call him a, he's the closest to the semi-technical. I think uh, he may think he's quite technical by American standards. He could be, but he was extremely easy to get on with. He was a superb driver. I mean, if you want a driver, you would have him. Um, and you know, he would give, give you good feedback, which is what you want. You just really, all you want is good feedback, the design engineer, because uh, that's the same job in my day. You did both. Nowadays, there's so many designers, so many engineers, it's untrue. But um, uh, he would come in and uh, we'd perhaps go through a series of things and near the end of practice, and I'd say, whoa, I think we're, you know, there's not much else we can do now. And he said, okay, I guess it's balls on the hood time. And he'd just go out and drive it and go quicker. And Patrese would do the same thing. Just, just say, that's it. I think we, there's nothing else we want to change because uh, it would be too inconvenient, so changing springs or something like that. So it's okay, I'll just go, a bit, go out and try harder. And they'd go, out, go half a second quicker. And they could do it. As I, as I said at the beginning of the show, um, we've got a lot of questions from our readers, Tony. Oh. She's always very reassuring, especially from your point of view. <laughs> Um, and uh, the first one I'd like to take comes from Steve, who wants to know how was it uh, to work with Colin Chapman at what was pretty much the beginning of Ground Effects, wasn't it? Um, can you tell us, that, I mean, everyone's interested in Chapman for lots of obvious reasons. Uh, 
Chat Mosek, uh, I was fascinated by him because for me, he was the uh, greatest British designer by far. Really? Even now, I can't, there's no one. Uh, I'm not I'm about winning races, like Newey wins all the races, but his cars are fairly what nicely developed aero packages. You went to Lotus, and there, cars would change dramatically. You know, if you wanted this, you wanted that. Uh, that's how Chapman liked. He liked. He didn't like an ordinary car. He hated a car that looked very ordinary. I remember when the the McLaren 23 came out, which was a sort of a a working man's version of a Lotus 72. Uh, he, but no, nicely done, nicely done, and all that. So they got a good team behind it, so it could work well, and it was winning. And we were looking at it uh, one day. This is when it started uh, winning, and he said, "If I have to design a car like that in the future, I'll retire." That's the sort. Of, that's he would want it with uh, self-leveling suspension, anti-locking brakes, and whatever gizmos he could think of. And that's how he worked on everything. Uh, the result was he had this incredible mind, uh, vastly superior to mine, on, on originality and things. I mean, I had a little bit of originality. He, he oozed it. And that was the attraction. So when uh, they approached me, because they were in, in the mire in the 77, they weren't doing very well at all, 76, whenever it was. Um, uh, I was uh, and at the time, uh, Shadow was, had run out of money and weren't going anywhere. Uh, I was sort of semi-flattered, I suppose. So, And I was fascinated by Chapman. So uh, I joined him on a short contract, a 15-month contract. Uh, but it was a madhouse. Chapman was a total nutter. I mean, they, they say... Uh, the, it's very borderline between genius and madness, and he was it. He was right on the edge. In fact, on occasion, he was over the edge. Uh, but the whole place was like that, because it emanates from the boss. So Peter Wall was the same, and all the others the same. So, until he got to Bob Dance, and he was the only stable, normal person going. But it, it's fascinating, but extremely difficult to work for. Yeah, we could talk about that a lot, couldn't we? I mean, oh, yeah. all, a lot of those mechanics are still there working on the classic team. Lotus oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. They they all, although he, he was difficult to work for, he had a massive following and a great admiration because uh, you knew he was going to come up with something interesting or different. And I remember in, back in the early days of racing when I was in the 60s, you used to look forward to seeing the new Lotus because yeah. they usually get two or three models each year coming out sports cars or singles either one there and you knew they're going to be interesting whereas the other teams you weren't mm -hmm. yeah you'd look at them and that's about it but you were waiting i remember when i first went for an interview with eric broadly for lola's it was the race car show 62 race car show and i think it was a to be the type i don't know a, a mid-engine lola a lotus just come out would it be the 18 i suppose uh 62 would it be at the 25, 25, 25, yeah. 25. Oh, no, this was, a, this was a, a, a Formula Junior. Oh, okay. 20, it'd be the Lowe's 20. 20 yeah. Yeah. And he said, he said, look at the Lowe's 20. Fantastic. And I went in there, and it was on a box set up high, so it was like eye level. And it looked stunning. Okay, nowadays you look at it, it's fairly stable. But in those days, it was like looking at, at a space shuttle. It was stunning. I thought, bloody hell. And that's what you were waiting for, because you knew he would set the pace every time. It's interesting, yeah. Andrew Ferguson once said to me about Chapman, the secret was to to learn to ignore the mood swings. <laughs> Is that, was that fair? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, yes, he was incredibly moody. Yeah. Incredibly moody. And 
uh, up and down. And he liked everyone to, uh, he wouldn't do any dirty work. He'd always get someone else, like me, regular to do the dirty work. And you realise why, because he wanted to be seen as Mr. Nice Guy, mm. and they're the dirty rotters over there, they've just sacked you, not me. <laughs> that sort of thing. I'm on shaky ground with this question, which comes from Ooh. Terry Jacob. The reason I'm on shaky ground is because I don't know if he's right or not, but here goes. Um, and he wants to ask you, Tony, is what was the thinking uh, that you had when you designed the BRM P180? He says, with extreme rear biased weight distribution. Uh, well, that, uh, the, the 160 was a very nicely balanced car, but it didn't have a big enough advantage over the opposition. I mean, it was level pegging, I suppose, for the top stuff. Uh, and ideally, when the car was about another half a second quicker. Well, in those days, uh, we were running on uh, Firestone tyres, and tyre development was big, because you've got aero coming in, Aero was coming in, but tyres were developing very rapidly. From we'd had originally on the uh, the first uh, BRN, the one uh, five three, it had thirteen inch wheels, little wheels. It was the first car with all little wheels and big balloon tyres. And then five minutes later, we had the one uh, sixty, which had uh, fifteen inch wheels and uh, low profile tyres. There was a big development there, and what we were chasing was grip, of course, all the time, because you had limited yeah. aero grip. Uh, very limited by modern standards, and so uh, and in my case, I was always looking for traction and oversteer. I never had a problem with the front end of the car, generally. Uh, it was just the back. Uh, always chasing traction, and so we're talking about going to bigger wheels, even putting four wheels on the back. Uh, I had uh, like a you know a hill climb car, like a, a Prescott hill climb car. I put two rear wheel, uh, front wheels on the back because uh, it reduced the frontal area. But it gained track because you had a greater tread pattern, uh, but it increased their height dramatically. Uh, but uh, that was a, a sort of a, just a, one of the directions. But ch the other route you could go chasing traction was actually putting more weight on the rear. I was running 65% on the, the 160s and the 153s, which is quite a chunk on the back, 65% of your static weight. Well, that's with the driver and fuel and everything. Um, and I thought, right, what we know, it's about 68%. And I couldn't get this extra 3% on the back easily because the, the, the car wasn't really much to a BRM. So I thought, well, the only thing I can move is the bloody radiator. So I thought, right, I'll move the radiator. Uh, but I actually put it behind the back axle instead of the front of the axle. I did have a scheme for the in front, but I um, wish it was like Lotus did, you know, 72, so that type of thing. Um, but... I was worried about the air. I was getting into air a big then. We were actually going to do the wind tunnel and uh, at Imperial College. And so I decided to go for rear radiators. And that ended up putting a bit too much on the back. It came out at, uh, it was very difficult to calculate <laughs> all the pipes and God knows what. And it came out 2% more, it came out 70% on the rear, which was over the top. Uh, it really needed to be about 68. And the result was uh, it. it the car worked right, but it didn't go any quicker than the 160. And, uh, that, of course, that's bad news. If you didn't go quick in your old car, no one's too, too excited. So, uh, uh, and at the same time, wings were coming in. And I had a three-element rear wing at the same time. Your aero was really coming in. And the aero got so good, uh, it covered up, could cover up the traction problem. And then the tyres 
they stabilized a bit and so it became the air and four-wheel drive came out so everyone said gotta go four-wheel drive i wasn't convinced about four-wheel drive because we had some knowledge of four-wheel drive brn because uh um they'd built one some years before yeah and uh mike pilbeen did it and he, he still worked there and so we knew a bit about it and if i found out they weren't running much on the front they had a very small split on the front axle i thought well it's hardly worth it it's like 20 percent so well, is it worth all that effort and the car was going to be heavy and so on so we we decided not to make a form uh, four-wheel drive car but everybody else went out and of course they didn't really work well, there's another question which is car specific and um it seems to come from cc um, and, and he's asking Tony is um, what, and his words are: Why was a car as gorgeous as the Shadow DN1 not a success? And you are you are the man to answer this. <laughs> and it's all in my book, <laughs> as no, they say. We, we were, but in actual, uh, it's not a simple answer. Uh, one, uh, don't forget, the car was a brand new team, been going five minutes, and uh, literally here in Northampton. And we built in a temporary factory, all that sort of thing. It was amazing. We hadn't even got the cars finished on time and built. But we did. Uh, what knocked the, There was no test or development program, negligible. Uh, what knocked that as well, Graham Hill appeared on the scene and he wanted one because he was starting his own team. And, of course, Don was flattered. Don Nichols, the owner, was flattered. So he sold him one and it was the embassy one, which was fine. The only trouble is uh, he then had... Uh, a new fledgling team, brand new, trying to de uh, develop the uh, their car. On top of that, you've got a customer, to, uh, Graham Allen, you couldn't ignore him because he, he wouldn't let you. And on top of that, we're doing Can-Am sports cars as yeah, well. Yeah. So put it all together, and the development was very poor. Uh, I changed, very early in the day, I changed the nose, made it four inches longer, shoved it out the front to get a bit more on the front, the split, uh, and then later, I changed the uh, wheelbase, I had a spacer. I was a great one for changing the, the wheelbase on the car, about a four inch spacer I used to put in, which would make 2% difference on the weight in those days. So uh, we did get around to that, but the trouble was we're left behind. We started off reasonably. In actual fact, if you look at the records, they're quite impressive. The very first time it ran, which is South Africa, George Fulmer had never driven a Formula One car. An American, classic American, brave driver, no, totally non-technical, very nice bloke, comes sixth. Yeah. Okay, the grid positions were low, but he came sixth. Oh, that's pretty good. Oliver engine went or something like that. Uh, Ollie had the knack of not finishing. Uh, the next race, the next race, he comes third. Yeah. Okay, there was problems with people up front, but that's motor racing. He still came third. And this was his second race, which I thought was bloody impressive. From then on, we went downhill. Uh, but... We found out later in the year uh, why, what some of this was. Uh, Don wasn't very popular with Goodyear. In those days, Goodyear would give out better tyres to the front runners, the top people, and so on. And we used to get what was left over, like the, the, the rock-hard ones, I suppose you'd call them. <laughs> uh, well, later in the year, uh, we had the Carlos Pace, you remember the driver? Yeah, yeah. Pache, yeah. what you like to call him. He, he was very... Uh, he was very friendly with Charlie. Perhaps he's edging his bets. Thought, well, this team might be going places. I'll look, see if I can get in there in the future. And Don, once again, was flattered by this. And he was a great bloke. And he'd be around. And we did a test at Silverstone. This was after the Grand Prix that year. Um, 
was it? 73. 73. Yeah. Uh, 73. Uh, and he drove the DM1, but he came along with his own tyres from Brabham. I don't know he got a set of tyres. He got a set of tyres anyway. And I think they painted out Goodyear or something like that and mounted them up and put them on the car and he went two and a half seconds quicker than Oliver. Which is equivalent to fifth on the grid in the Grand Prix. And suddenly he said, ah, oh, now we know. We were getting duff tyres basically. I'm not saying the car was perfect, but it's hell of a lot. Massive. It was two and a half seconds. I couldn't believe it. It was about 2.3 and 5 or well, it's something. It's night and day, isn't it? Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, you just can't. Trouble is, you can design a new car and it wouldn't go two seconds quicker. You'd build a new engine, it wouldn't go two seconds quicker. Yeah, everything's always about half a second or one second. Oh, if you get a second, you're really chuffed with a new car. Sure, absolutely, yeah. And uh, so that contributed. Uh, and uh, at the end of the year, uh, I then went and built the DN3 and we did a back back test with DN3 and DN1. And Revson was driving both of them, and he thought the uh, DM1 was quite good. <laughs> but of course, by then we were getting better tyres, and also we got a, um, a more experienced driver, so he would give us the feedback that we wanted to hear. Okay, good. We're, we're, answering, we're answering the questions that are being sent in, which is all good. Um, a lot of these people, by the way, have read your book. In fact, some of them have got signed copies. Oh. So um, oh. maybe a few more will fly off the shelves after this podcast goes out. Um, <coughs> we got to talk to you about um, arrows, haven't we? Because um, there was it was such a such a sort of political uh, court battles, you name it, it happened. Um, looking back on it, and I'm sure Simon and Nigel will have questions about this because they were also there at the time. But looking back on it, did it? Did you at any point think, God, I've had enough of this Formula One courtrooms and battles? And I mean, because there was a lot of flack fired at you guys, wasn't there, over that? Uh, yeah, it was, uh, yes, it was a very bad, bad period. Obviously, uh, Arrows was a mistake. It shouldn't have happened. Um, as by, I remember I went at a meeting with Don in town here in Northampton. We had dinner. There's a pair of us. And this is when... Uh, Oliver was going down the road and wanted to start a new team and Reese was going, everybody was supposedly going with him and, and there was only me left. And uh, he knew I was uh, being ear earmarked to go and he was pleading with me not to go. Uh, but I was easily led, I suppose you could say, by the others. And uh, I said, I'll have to, yeah, if they're all going, I'll have to go, that type of thing. God knows why I said that, but I did. And he was pleading with me and Don Nichols doesn't plead with anybody. He's a sort of, well, he's ex-CIA or something. He never denied it, but uh, uh, I was told he spe specialised in pushing people out of helicopters <laughs> in Korea. Uh, well, not him, but the outfit he worked for. Well, that's how they get the truth, don't they, from people. You get two of them in the helicopter, push one out, and the other one spills the beans. And um, yeah, that would work, I can see. Yeah, I can see. Way. I can understand that. I'd do that. I'd tell him whatever they wanted to know. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 so, and I came home and said to, to Sue that uh, what happened, and he said, that's a big mistake. You shouldn't have done that. And she was absolutely right. Because uh, if I'd have stayed, we'd have carried on, okay. And we wouldn't have had all the aggro. The car would have been a lot better because I've had time to develop it and whatnot. Um, and so, yeah, it's all a bit of a big mistake, you could say. 
but was it was it partly about money? I mean, the whole th the the I mean, there've always been, haven't there? Motor racing is full of stories of people copying this and copying that and stealing this and stealing that. I mean, it's not that's not a new thing in motor racing. But did you feel hurt by some of that criticism? Um, well, I always found it sort of a bit odd because they say because I used to draw from home in those days. I, at least half my career has been spent at home drawing. So if you went into my office, which would be a bit stuck on the end of the house, uh, there'd be rolls of drawings everywhere, and there'd be Lotus drawings there, and something drawing there. And the cars I'd either worked on, or the people that invariably didn't, I mean, for example, when I did Ford rally car, uh, and Toyota, I said, what do you want all me to do with all drawings? They said, oh, you just keep them, we don't want them. And that's it, I had the entire drawings for the RS200, and they had a copy of them, I do a film copy, they'd have their copy, and I'd have mine, because obviously had to as I was working. So the drawings are always there. And so one day you're drawing one car, next day you're drawing another. And the fact that you've got all the drawings there, and to anyone in the naive to think that you're not going to actually look at the drawings, because they are your drawings for Christ's sakes, all the trick stuff is in your head. All the, all the roll centers, the, the center of gravities, the wheel bases, the tracks, and the, uh, the coefficients of this that and the other it's in your head so they can't take that away from you uh, so based on that everybody copies because you're not telling me that ferrari don't go and buy that new lad uh, from where where did he come from who are you talking James this allison week. yeah allison what do they buy allison oh well for? yes of course that's that's the way it it's, works he doesn't have to come along with a uh, with a stick with all the info in his pocket that it's in his head the, the tricky stuff that makes the damn thing works in his head. And if he's got a really good brain, he's got a lot in his head. And so uh, that used to make me, I used to chuckle. I said, well, how can uh, on Friday I'm drawing a shadow and on Monday I'm drawing an arrow? Don't you think there might be something similar? However, there, there was too much similar because uh, we were hit with this, uh, when eventually decided we, we'd you know, start a new team. We had three months to the first race. And... Uh, we were told by Bernie we couldn't miss more than two races in the one year. So we scrapped the first two races. So the first race is going to be Brazil. So that was the target, get to Brazil. And uh, so we had to produce a car to get uh, Brazil. Ideally, we wouldn't have done started till say, Europe, in which case then sure. it, it'd been a, it could have been a more different. As it was, it was a slightly improved DN9. Have you, have you Better looking. <laughs> um, this is a bit, this is a, a very broad question, but um, it is very odd, isn't it, that Arrows had so 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 little success? I mean, you would expect most teams to have some success. Um, was was there something actually fundamentally flawed with the whole operation, or what? I mean, uh, well, yeah, yeah, it's not just. Arrows, Shadow was the same. They had one victory. Uh, we had loads of times when we were running good. I mean, we, in the, when the DM5 came in in 75, yeah. we were the, the team to beat, yeah, for crying out loud. Yeah. And we went off to South America, and Jerry was yeah. blasting off into the distance. Yeah. He was 30 seconds in the lead almost at one race. Yeah. Same when uh, the, the, uh, the uh, FA1, the yeah. Arrow, at, in South Africa. Oh, I was miles yeah. in the lead, yeah. and an engine went. The engine went because... We didn't realise then, but Patrese was a very young driver, a bit of enthusiastic. Although we got this big lead, instead of sort of say backing off and so oh, I'll win by ten seconds or twenty seconds, uh, 
he cracked on flat out sort of thing and he was changing because these are a normal cars where you change gear and have clutches and all that sort of thing and to improve to help the braking car he changed that very early so the engine basically over revved but because of the rev limit, he assumed that he wouldn't damage it. But of course, you can actually still go whizzing straight through to 11,000 uh, uh, through the rev limit. He would just go blah, 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 blah. And he was doing this, and eventually the engine quit. And uh, I remember him crying. Uh, but we just, mm, I don't know. But that was a, yeah, we had a lot, we had quite a few of those. And that, lots of quite good places over the years. But. Uh, uh, I was said if if, the, if Lotus, not that they'd want to run the DM5, but if you just transpose that car into their organisation, uh, they must have won the World Championship because they'd have kept their development going as well. Yeah. They had a big budget; there was had plenty of money. Lotus, well, they did whatever they wanted. Let's put it that way. And uh, uh, if it needed a wider this or a bigger that, they'd do it. Whereas that didn't happen mm. really, Shadow. In fact, I mean, Ricardo was very much the enfant terrible for a while, wasn't mm. he? I mean, the, I, I, I remember um, Anderstorp that mm. year. He had, a, he had a big battle with Ronnie, and Ronnie rarely got upset, but after the race, he was, he was absolutely livid <laughs> with him. He just, you know. Oh, but who was there? Which was the first car, legal car home for that race? Ah. <laughs> and Arrows. It's hey, true. One. It's true. <laughs> No, was it the FA1 there? FA1. FA1. Uh, because the car in front was blatantly illegal, but because it was Bernie's car, nobody dared say anything. No. Can I, did, if I can just reverse back from Arrows to Shadows for, um, for a couple of minutes. Well, I'm old now, so it doesn't matter, does it? <laughs> so if, I, if you're just allowed to reverse back from Arrows to Shadow for a couple of minutes, Tom Price. Yeah. Members of Tom Price, more he was like to work with. Lovely man. Lovely man. Um... He was not a technical driver, but he had great feedback. Um, if you changed anything, he'd come back and tell you straight away what he had done, uh, which takes quite a bit of skill, because, I mean, you go around these guys, they're bouncing around and lurching around and screeching, God knows, and just come back and sort of say, that shock absorber adjustment was a little bit better on the exit. Uh, it's quite amazing. Uh, he could do that sort of thing. And on top of that, he was incredibly dedicated. He was like a... A faithful dog. Uh, he was always there, and uh, he was not, not quite be... like Jerry, then. Oh no, total opposite. <laughs> total opposite. Uh, total opposite to, to Jerry. Yeah, he liked to be with the crew all the time, going down the pub or whatever it was, uh, in the garage at night at the race meetings. He wouldn't go home. He couldn't say piss off back to the hotel. He wouldn't go. That sort of thing. Uh, he was that type of bloke, uh, and yeah, just a superman, really lovely, a fantastic flair. Oh, his yeah. car control yeah. was. Yeah, he learned. He told me he learned it driving his minivan in Wales. Around <laughs> <laughs> uh, those twisty lanes in the rain, I suppose you got to have quick reactions. But yeah, he um, he just went quick. Uh, that was it, and he wasn't demanding at all. Not at all. Okay, let's take let's uh, let's go back to um, a couple of questions. This one comes from Paolo. I don't know Paolo who, but anyway, Paolo, um, and it's taking us swapping again back to sports cars, um, in which you, of course, were also extremely successful. And he's he's asking should should they go back to full ground effect aerodynamics? Because he says the current crop of these LMP1 cars look more like single seaters with bumpers and a roof. 
Yeah, I think the current Le Mans regulations are ridiculous. In, I what, mean, in what sense, Tony? Well, what, as you say, the, the, the cockpit look is a single-seater cockpit. There's no question being two-seaters. I mean, it's either, if it's a sports car, it's got to have two seats, minimum. And it's got to look a bit like a sports car. Yes. These things look like weirdos. And as for that stupid great fin to stop them flipping over, I mean, what a load of crap that is. But anyway, the FIA stipulate you've got to have that. I didn't have any problems with my cars. And I've done a lot of sports cars. Yeah, I know, yeah. Okay, in the early days, Lola's flipped over, but everybody flipped over because they didn't know what to do. But once you twigged that aeros make, uh, the aerodynamics makes quite a difference, you concentrate on it. And the, it was quite easy at Le Mans. You, there's no way you let the nose get up. You leave that to people like Mercedes. Remember the year they, they flew through? I was there and they, they fl flipped three times, three Terrifying. different cars. And it's quite easy. You went up to the car, the car was set basically horizontal. And they were chasing grip because they got terrific traction off the corners. Well, bloody hell, how'd they do that? But they'd be running soft springs and running it squat to the rear so that as the car accelerated, it literally squatted down and the rear would be lower than the front. And as a result, the nose is high. And as you go up speed, that nose doesn't come down because the, the rear wing pushes the back down. So the result was they go down the straight at best level, uh, worst slightly nose eye, which is kiss of death, and the, where they took off, they were going over some curbs, uh, which would unload the front. It was already very, very light, and it, they just once once you get uh, air on the front, those things just fly. And I remember that the first time it happened, I was with Audi at the time. Uh, our cars were instrumented, so we knew what downforce the car had on the circuit, uh, which is a bit cheating, really, isn't it? But I mean, it's commonplace now, of it's course. Very Audi. Yeah, but so we immediately hit the button, said, "Well, at that corner, what, how much downforce we got?" And we still had thirty percent on the front, which was quite a respectable figure. I mean, the car started with forty, or could be if you wanted. Um, so we were okay. But the Mercedes obviously was right on the knockings. Um, that uh, uh, yeah, to me, that was obvious. Uh, you didn't have to go up and work it out. I could just see it. Uh, but unfortunately Mercedes, apparently they told the engineers they could change anything as long as the car didn't go slower. Which takes a bit of doing. <laughs> they were lucky not to lose a driver actually, weren't they? Amazing. Yeah. Amazing, Alan. When you see the films. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. But that, uh, uh, so that type of car, uh, I suppose if you, if you say, well, if Mercedes couldn't get it right then, just going back a few years, of course, uh, what chance the rest? Uh, okay, so you could have some regulations that perhaps prevented that, I don't know, a pitch of a car or something of that nature where they never get the nose in the air. Um, but they are very, quite pitch sensitive because of a big flat area. And I started where we had no restrictions on aero and later on uh, it was restricted. And obviously the cars with more aero are safer because you you can control it, you can put it where you want it, and, and you have so much that uh, you'd have a hell of a job to, to disrupt, disrupt it. The, the big problem is, as, uh, the, uh, as you d describe those fins on these cars, is, it, is, is what it, it ends up with all the cars looking exactly the same as each other, which I always think is disappointing in all forms of motor racing, isn't it? Unfortunately, you've got that. I mean, uh, you paint them all the same colour, and you'd have a j hell of a job knowing who, which is which. Yeah. Um, that's uh, well. That's the situation we're in because uh, regulations. You could change that a bit. Say, like we're talking about Formula One. If you just say no front wing, uh, 
you could have a variety of different shapes and configurations, which perhaps like you did in the old 70s and 80s, yeah. Yeah. where they could s produce similar lap tires. So you would have differences. Um, but uh, and, and same with the sports cars, you could do the same. But I don't think the likes of Mercedes and Audis and whatnot, Porsche, would be too interested. They like the high tech because it's a platform for them, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at look what we can do. Yes, and also then apparently we can, if we've got enough money, we can go and buy one on the road, don't we? Well, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, because um, yeah, hybrids are common, yeah. aren't they? So that uh, uh, I can understand why they do it. It doesn't make for good racing. Here's an here's a, a an odd one, an odd one to me because I have not read your book, tut tut, but I'm going to now because I'm, I'm I'm intrigued by it all. But uh, Chris Jenkins uh, once says that you you owned or built or raced a silver. Simon probably knows about this because Simon's an encyclopedia, by the in case you didn't know. But anyway, um, at some point, is this right? Is this right? Yes. Ah, okay. When I, yeah, when I retired or stopped. Uh, racing, uh, start working in racing. That is, uh, two thousand, year two thousand. I shouldn't actually stop them. But I was so bloody knackered. I, <laughs> I just, I thought I'd recover, but I didn't. Anyway, I, um, I bought a, a silver from Jeremy Phillips, who makes them up in North Lincolnshire. And it's just sort of like a Caterham type car with a sports body on it. Uh, because this was a class in the 750 club, and I was tied up with the 750 club, so I wanted to uh, 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 join in. And uh, but he built it; I didn't build it. I just went along and gave him a check, and it was there. And Must also, have made a nice change. Actually. It's nice, it's shiny, uh, brand new, and uh, cost, of course, peanuts by my standards, the world I come from. And I raced that for about eight years, seven, eight years, and uh, great fun. I'm not a driver at all, but I could go round and round and join in. And, uh, yes, yeah, great fun. You certainly, certainly appreciated how good professional drivers are, of course. The encyclopedia is going to ask you a question <laughs> now. Well, no, just, it's, it's quite nice to see the wheel turning full circle like that. I mean, you kind of cut your teeth at the 750 Motor yeah. Club. And, but, I mean, Adrian Reynolds done a similar thing. He's, built, he's yeah. gone back to building himself sports cars years after he was a mainstream car manufacturer. And... Um, He's doing likewise. I talked him into doing that. Oh, that's your He blames me. He came along with a test day at Silverstone. I was in my silver thing, and I got a little bit of trouble, actually, and I was fiddling with it, and he came up to me because he was there, and he got a caterer, I think, and he was having a whiz round, just a general practice. He wasn't racing or anything, just a track day. And he came up and started looking at it, and he was quite fascinated at I was doing this, and I said, oh, yeah, I'll do that, and I may change it a little bit. No, only personalise it, not uh, the main thing and change, uh, the structure or the suspension or anything, uh, just set up. And I said, yeah, you want it, it's great fun. So, uh, but he fancied the bike, because within 750 Club, we've got lots the of The road-going bike. The road-going bikes, yeah. uh, uh, there's two bike formulas, and the road-going bike attracted him, where you use a motorcycle engine, which is very cheap, uh, relatively cheap and very light horsepower. And uh, so he fancied one. So he went out and bought one just to get a feel for it and drove it. And then uh, then he designed and made one. <laughs> and he's still doing it. Yeah, absolutely. As you do. Mm. I think I think it's great. I mean, it, uh, f having having designed so many great cars for so many great racing drivers, you then go and do it yourself. And it's probably not as easy as it looks, is it? The driving isn't, no, that's for sure. Uh, because... Uh, 
now and again, other people will drive my car. Friends, uh, one of them is a, a good guy called Clark Club race in Historics. He wins all these Formula Junior races, John Milicevic. And he got in the car and he did three laps around Silverstone and went one half seconds quicker. <laughs> and he'd never been in the car. And I said, that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> So it just shows you how far off the pace I was. Have you ever seen John taking his Formula Junior through Hall Benz at Cadwell? It's just one of the best no, sites no. in National Motor. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. It's just brilliant. Yeah, well, yeah. I recommend it next time he's oh, up no, there. I, I've seen him locally a lot, Silverstone a lot, but uh, um, yeah, he's, he's actually a very talented driver. Hmm. Uh, but I mean, he's uh, like many, uh, what you call club racer, they're, they're very close to being uh, potentially professional. Um, we're running out of time, which is sad, because it's very entertaining. Um, but we can't finish without talking about Jaguar and Tom Walkinshaw. Um, for one reason, well, for lots of reasons, actually, but, but um, how, how did it, it... It must have been amazing to win, to win ha, remembering the fact that they wouldn't even give you an apprenticeship all those years before. I mean, did, that must have given you a little smile of satisfaction, apart from the win, of course. Oh yes, that's a very, very pleasing feeling. Yes, uh, I was very uh, when the job came up. Uh, Roger Silman, who's team manager of the TWR, he phoned me. We, we know him from old days, uh, Shadow days. Yeah. Uh, he was at Shadow for a long time, and then he went to uh, March, and so we're old sort of buddies. And he, uh, he knew Tom wanted to make his own car. And uh, he knew I was av uh, available or p potentially available. And I was just finished the Ford rally project. So uh, he just phoned me up. And when he told me what it was, the Jaguar Le Mans Group C car, he said, are you interested? It took me about a microsecond to say, yes. <laughs> and uh, because to me, uh, you, know, it was, uh, you couldn't ask for better. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, it's a very, uh, uh, very interesting period, uh, obviously. Uh, most memorable and enjoyable in the sports car. I did a lot of sports cars, but that was definitely the uh, the, the good bit. The only trouble is, it got, uh, it got groups. He got too successful, and they nobbled it basically mm. at the end. What was Walkinshaw like to work with? Uh, I suppose you get what you see. Uh, he, uh, for me, it was no problem. He just let me get on with it. And if you say you want anything, it would appear. Um, it was a tough character, but he didn't give me a hard time at all. Uh, uh, he, he, he was very much in charge, you know, at the race tracks and telling people what to do and what sort of the, the drivers and things. Because obviously, he being a driver himself, he knew what it was all about. Um, but I had no problem with him at all. Uh, no, no, none at all. It's, uh, I know a lot of people don't like him or didn't like him. When you talk to the guys who drove that car, they rave about it. And I want—I often wonder, with it was with in somebody in a job like yours, is do you always know why you managed to produce just this this one great racing car? I mean, did, I mean, did you did you always think this is going to be? I've I've got it here. This is going to be fantastic. Um. Well, start with uh, Tom just said to me. He wanted, uh, when we do a car, he wanted to be all modern, you know, like a Formula One car. Well, not literally Formula One, he meant modern technology. So in other words, he didn't want me to turn up with a tubeless base frame, what have you. Okay. Uh, 
uh, which I wouldn't have anyway. Sure. But uh, so he, he just said that. So that um, it meant that he was used all carbon technologies like carbon chassis, carbon body, or Kevlar body, and later carbon. Uh, uh, and it had a lot of wind tunnel testing. Although the models were quite small in those days, it was still, compared to the opposition, uh, pretty damn good because we were running on rolling roads, which of course Porsche didn't even have. Yeah. Uh, and I looked at the Porsche and just said, well, what, what's the weak area of a Porsche? I mean, Porsche was winning everything. They'd won everything. It was sort of so boring. You knew it. they're going to come first, second, third, God knows what. And I thought, well, how, the, how do we beat this? It's certainly not on reliability. Um, uh, I looked and I thought, well, that arrow doesn't look good to me because they, they you can tell just looking at shapes whether they're good. I mean, it looked clean and nice, but I thought the front end looked very weak. And a sports car needs a very strong front end, a lot of downforce, so you can then play around with the balance of the car and tune it so it turns in quick, which is essential. And uh, I thought, well, that's a weak link there. Uh, the other thing was, it had got a fairly old medieval chassis frame, you know, just a simple aluminium tub, which would be uh, you know, stiffness of rice pudding sort of thing. So I thought, well, we can easily blow it off there because we get a really good carbon chassis, uh, which would be super rigid um it means the suspension will work better the feedback will be better and then i thought well when we get the suspension we'll go really to try to get um, very good wheel control so damper movement was like one to one minimum uh whereas most cars are like 0.6 the shock could only move 0.6 of the wheel movement that was typical and uh, so you had more control all the time uh but the aero was uh I knew exactly what we got. Yeah, I knew what horsepower we got. The only, oh, the only condition was I had to use the V12 engine, yeah. which is a massive engine. Yeah, I'd never seen engines so big. And it was colossal. And I was a bit worried about that because it was so heavy and big, it was going to dominate the car. So I <laughs> stuffed it well forward. It's right up by the driver's shoulder. And we had a sort of quite a long bell housing to get the weight forward. And the weight came out fine, so that was all right. And uh, the... Uh, uh, but the I knew the power available because we had good horsepower, 740. We got up to one stage at the end. Uh, I'd got to get down the straight quicker than anybody else. About 240 miles an hour was the bracket in those days because we didn't have chicanes initially. And uh, until so I just worked and worked away in the winter until he got it. And once I got it, was, could do consistently two, 240. And I got still got acceptable downforce, not a lot of downforce. Um, uh, in sprint form, you could double the downforce quite easily, but you don't need that, Lamar. You've got to get down those straights quick. Uh, and as soon as I'd done that, uh, I knew that the car was basically a winning package. You just got to m make it and test it and whatnot. And uh, so when in '88, where I knew we, we knew reliability was going to be a big problem, so it took us three years to get it reliable. Uh, gearbox was the main trouble. See, we had a modern paddle shifting which came a little later uh, that had dramatically changed the the jaguar position we had a lot of gearbox failure yeah. and you get a 50 percent increase in life immediately going to paddle shifts yeah. Yeah. but uh anyway it didn't exist then so uh, uh i knew yeah i expected it to be good uh and so when when actually lammers overtook stuck in that's in 88 that's the year we won the first year we won when he overtook on the molson straight and he actually waved to Stuck as he went by. Oh, you heard that story. That's genuine. Yeah, because Stuck came up to me. He says, that cheeky bug, he says. At the end of it, he says, as he passed me, he waved. <laughs> like this, because you can't do anything. 
<laughs> he just slipped out of the slipstream, <laughs> went by him, and I saw it on TV because watching in the in the garage, you see it on the monitor. As soon as I saw that, I thought, "That's it! All those bloody years of working in the in the flaming wind tunnel, hours and hours, hours, had paid off." There, it just went, and it, of course, it would do it every lap easily. You just sat there and hang on. Bit terrified, hang on, mind you. But uh, I remember Eddie Cheever first time I went down, flat out. He said he's he said he was hanging on the steering wheel so 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 tight. He says I reckon my knuckles were white. <laughs> it's bloody fast. Yeah. Two hundred and forty yeah. is bloody yeah. fast in yeah. anything. And it's it? a long time you're doing it. Yeah. I think we're on full throttle for sixty-three seconds. I mean, that's, you stand next to a diner when the engines are running. Sixty-three seconds is a hell of a long time. And, well, especially when it's on your shoulder. Yes. <laughs> Terrifying. When you think back, you start thinking about it, think, that's mad, mad. What did you do that for? I don't know. Well, great. As it says, uh, as it says on the front of your, your book, uh, the autobiography of one of motorsport's most prolific and versatile racing car designers, and we've only scratched the surface, but thank you so much. And thank you for coffee, biscuits, and having us in your home. It's been tremendous. And... Anyone like to bring anything else up before we go? I just, um, we've talked about some of the successful projects you were involved with. You, you were involved <laughs> with the cellar for a while, weren't you? Oh, yes, that was uh, uh, yeah. funny oh, because I, I, um, I got a phone call from Ferrari from uh, the lawyer. What was his name? Piccinini. Piccinini, yes. He was the, the legal man and uh, he was very involved in the team. He's always at the race meetings and whatnot, but he always knew he's a bit tricky you know he's the lawyer better watch it uh, and anyway he phoned me up and I thought what the hell is he phoning me for and he says I, I've been asked to phone you up uh, uh, on behalf of Fry I said what for and he says well we got a friend of ours Enzo Acella uh, who wants some help to get uh, he needs a um, to get a contract with uh, with Alfa Romeo for turbo engine or something and, and he's got to prove to them that he's worth it or something so he said uh, can you make a new car for him and I thought oh I thought I was rather curious of that and I was doing other things at the time and, and he only wanted a chassis I hadn't got to do anything else so I went down there and he got a fantastic setup in Italy I was a bloody amazing much better than what people have over here obviously spend all the sponsors money on on workshops and he had, his workshop was so big he just drove the truck into it and he had his own little test track adjoining it. Anyway, uh, the uh, so I made this chassis. John Thompson made it up the road. It was actually a very nice, neat little chassis. It's quite a few photographs in the book about it because there's one of the cars I can actually photograph and not get uh, taken to court. So uh, <laughs> uh, I think you've been you've been there enough times. You'll, you'll notice there's not many photographs of sh of uh, shadows and arrows in there. Well, there are only normal photographs, not not what you call technical photos. Um, and uh, so there's quite a few shots. And yes, it was quite a neat package, and it worked, and it went out, and they were quicker than the old Alfa Romeo works car with the same engine. It had a V12 engine, and it had, uh, it was oozing with titanium, I remember, the engine and gearbox. I said, God, did they spend some money? Boy. <laughs> and Ginzani drove it, didn't he? Yes, and... Uh, and Jerry, eh? Fabi. Yeah, the car of play. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I went on to a few races with them, and it was great, because it was like a big Italian family, incredibly different to the British teams. Yeah. You know, everything stopped for dinner. Yeah. You know, at the end of the race, first thing at practice, first thing he did was have dinner. And that would take an hour and a half, say. 
And by the time you finished dinner, you could see all the other mechanics, half of them were going home. And they used to go by and wave, say, say we haven't started yet. <laughs> but very different. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, good stuff. Well remembered, Simon. Okay. Um, well, it is time for us to go, but we'll be back uh, next month uh, with another Motorsport Magazine podcast. And um, my my editor, Ed Foster, is nodding at me furiously. So, yes, we definitely will be. And I know, In fact, we've got two more lined up. I know that because um, I'm trying to remember when they are. Tom Christensen, that'll be a great one. Yeah, yeah, what a guy. And um, and McGuinness, the motorcyclist, of course. Mr. TT, Mr. Isle of Man. Okay, anyway, we're not going there now. Thank you very much indeed, Tony Southgate. And just to remind you, his book is called From Drawing Board to Checkered Flag. It's published by MRP, which I imagine stands for Motor Racing Publications, does it? Yeah, good, okay. Um, so thanks everybody very much for listening. It's goodbye from Simon Aaron, goodbye from Nigel Roebuck, goodbye from Ed Foster, and goodbye from me. See you next time.